Hello, everyone. This is another episode of Free For All, and this is your host, Big John, alongside my partner and uh, cohort in all things particularly uh, interesting, not interesting. I just like hanging out with the guy, radio legend, libertarian radio legend, Bob Zadek. Bob, how are you doing today? Thank you very much, Big John. Thank you so much for joining me today with our guests and our interesting conversation. Uh, how I am doing? Well, I live in California, so I always, whenever I speak to libertarians, somewhere in the conversation, I will end up saying something like, I know, I know, but the weather's great. <laughs> so don't... <laughs> So that's that's how I'm doing. And truly, today, the weather's great. Taxes are. There you go. Yeah, I was going to say, being a libertarian in California might be the very definition of a living hell. So, uh, Bob, I sympathize with you. Being a New Yorker, I'm almost, if not quite, in the same boat as you. Having said that, we are very happy to have as our guest today... uh, Mr. Ian Rowe. He's from the American Enterprise Institute. He focuses on education, upward mobility, family formation, and adoption. He has a forthcoming book called Agency, which I'm sure we'll be happy to have him tell us about. Uh, But the topic today, uh, uh, Ian, uh, if I can may call you Ian, uh, we're going to talk about reparations and what's going on in California. Uh, whether reparations are a good idea, what is the alleged benefit of reparations. And then if you have any uh, thoughts about it or possible alternatives, we'd love to get into that discussion with you. So welcome to Free For All. We're very happy to have you on the show. I am so excited to be here. Big John and Bob. (laughs) There you go. It's a little bit of alliteration. And uh, just so the folks know, there might be some oh, yeah. attitude coming out of the show. We were talking briefly before we started the cameras. All three of us are native New Yorkers. Uh, we'll we'll kind of uh, we'll let yeah, Bob tag along. Uh, because, I don't know if he gets uh, to to. Uh, I, yeah, he's been Californiaized. Ian, no, and, don't go there. I. If I feel I'm losing my New York creds, I just take a red eye back to New York, uh, walk the streets. Inhale the caffeine, get my edge back, come home, and eat alone okay. again. Because whenever you're a New Yorker and you're yeah. in California, you spend most of your meals eating right. by yourself. Oh, but you didn't say take the subway. Like, no. Um, no, you hear that, uh, hear that hesitation. hesitation. You hear that hesitation? There it is. Hesitation. He, he, the it's New Yorker hesitation. review is done. Yep. You just expressed every New Yorker knows you got to deal with the subway. So, Absolutely. But absolutely. So, uh, why don't we why don't we set the stage for reparations, Ian? If you would just present for our audience what reparations means, put us in the context. Start from, if you will, the if even a dictionary definition, and we're going to go fast forward to why this is a relevant conversation this day um, in this country? So, yeah, it's a, good, it's a good place to start because how you define terms is often crucial to the argument because often I find people are just talking past one another and they're arguing about different things. So the people who are generally talking about reparations are talking about, if if I had to use one word, payback for wrongs that were done a long time ago and these wrongs that have been accumulated even to present day, it's payback time. It's payback time, right? What's interesting is you just said wrongs that have been accumulated. A wrong cannot accumulate. There can be a series of wrongs. So there was a wrong in the past, 
and that wrong may have had after effects that carry forward to today. But the same wrong isn't being perpetrated in this case. It's only the the after effects. Uh, you you recover from an illness and you have an immunity. Well, that's a positive after effect. And I think we'll find, as we discuss this topic, that issue, yes. who committed the wrong and who was wronged will be quite relevant. But yes. So, so let me give you an example of a present day person who is arguing for reparations, both for historical wrongs and present day wrongs. So there is an author, a writer, uh, her name is Nicole Hannah-Jones. She works at the New York Times. She was the lead author of a major magazine issue called the 1619 Project, which some of your viewers might know, paints America as a inherently racist nation, anti-Black racism in the very DNA of the country. But in addition to being lead author of that uh, essay, Nicole Hannah-Jones wrote an 8,000-word essay in the New York Times Magazine, and the essay is called, What is Owed? What is Owed? And in these 8,000 words, Nicole Hannah-Jones makes her case for why America, both for historical wrongs and present-day wrongs, the U.S. government needs to allocate something close to $13 trillion to pay off Black Americans who meet certain criteria to make up as payback. And what she says is this, um, because if you look at the data associated with the 2019 Survey of Consumer Finances, it says quite clearly that the wealth of the average white family is about $160,000 more than the wealth of the average black family. That is a fact. And in this essay, Nicole Hannah-Jones basically says that is proof of both historical and present day oppression and why America has to write a fat check to black Americans. And she even, and she even goes so far as to say this. She says, none of the things that black people are told that they should do it doesn't matter if they get college educated, doesn't matter if they buy a home, doesn't matter if they get married, doesn't matter if they save. None of those things, in Nicole Hannah-Jones' view, uh, can make up for what she calls 400 years of racialized plundering, end quote. And of course, now I will say Nicole Hannah-Jones has done all four of those things in her own life to lead a quite prosperous existence and good for her. But if you take that same exact data from the 2019 Survey of Consumer Finances and just consider two other factors, family structure and education, the wealth of the average married black college educated uh, family is about $160,000 more than the wealth of the average white single parent family. Now, the reason that's important is that perhaps there are factors outside of race that can be far more powerful and determinative of the wealth that an individual of any race can achieve. So among the reasons I'm against, among the reasons <coughs> that I'm against reparations is that the very idea infantilizes the very people that you're seeking to help. And in my view, actually would weaken the position of most Black Americans, not to mention the civil war that would likely happen uh, in, in our country. Mm -hmm. But that's why the, the people who are arguing for this are arguing it. So, so they're having, they want their cake and eat it too, Bob. They're arguing both historical and present day oppression, because they use the data, just like I just described, as irrefutable proof of the insurmountability by black people over white oppression. And, and you know, Ian, to that point, 
uh, I find it fascinating because what you just said opens up so many different avenues of discussion that I think um, even from a numbers point of view and uh, by profession and trade, I'm a data scientist. So when I listen to stuff like this, I always, my brain starts racing. So for example, it's the same argument that's applied uh, on gender-based uh, gaps, for example, wage gap. Uh, it's, it's a mm-hmm. similar type of argument that if there exists a fundamental gap, whether it's in wealth, status, anything, it has to be attributable to a yep. single characteristic that just happens to be the most identifiable one. So for the folks that are talking about gender wage gaps, obviously it's gender. Uh, for folks who are proponents of reparations, it's well, it's yep. got to be race-related. Of course, human beings are multivariate yes. creatures. We are the results of several different factors. You mentioned education, marital status, um, way, cognitive age. ability. The average white person in this country is about age. 20 years uh, older than the average black person. So obviously, if you're only, if you're only looking at race, obviously your earnings power is going to be much higher. So that's another trick of, of those who are arguing for reparations using this kind of data. And for the and, benefit, and also, for, sorry, yes. for ahead, the benefit of our audience, um, there is um, a understanding economists know quite well, and it's very short, uh, and you guys know what I'm about to say, and that is correlation is not Correct. causation. The fact that you can say here is a characteristic difference and that proves that one caused the other. No, one can make that calculation even among people with different eye colors and there will be a (laughs) difference. And, And you'll end up concluding people with blue eyes earn more or less. And you'll say, therefore, let's all have cat, let's all have uh, contact lenses that are blue. So I remind the audience to don't be misled by that linking of random characteristics and say one causes it's, it's, the it's other. It's what I call the the theory of mono causality, where where you look at a disparity mm. and you immediately come to the conclusion that if there's a disparity by X category, like race, then it must be racism. I mean, Abraham Kendi, who wrote the book, uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist, he says it explicitly. He says, quote, if I see a racial disparity, I see racism, period, end quote, end of story, full stop. And so when that theory is out there, it sucks the energy out of any other type of explanation. And that's the problem with our uh, civil dialogue right now. There's no space to actually have the nuanced conversation of what are all the factors that might lead to differences in outcomes for people of all backgrounds. And you're right, because, uh, for example, there's a couple of things, and there's so much I want to get to, because when you bring this up in terms of causality, for example, People like Thomas Sowell, Milton Friedman always pointed out that in the U.S., black families economically and socially were better off uh, at the early part of the 20th century prior to to federal programs designed to compensate uh, a perceived gap, whether it was in earnings or social mobility, uh, for black families. And that it was precisely when those programs kicked in, especially uh, LBJ's War on Poverty, that you saw the decline in status and the decline of earning power of uh, Black families in general. Like you said, if we divide, if we divvy up the data even more thinly, as you did, say with uh, married, college-educated, uh, dual-parent homes, the results of of, of those of uh, demographics are significantly higher up the scale than even say single white families or single parent white homes, for example. And and Big John, the the dividing line is conveniently the great society programs. If you you want a marker, start with 1965 
before and after, and that's the marker. Now, we're talking about reparations. So reparations, the call for reparations is supported by the the data that Ian mentioned to us. But let's talk about, so there is an alleged proof that, now I can't finish it exactly because it's incoherent, but I'll say that the government, collectively, the government uh, caused wrongs to occur over centuries of, of ill treatment of minorities, specifically blacks. And the fact of those alleged wrongs uh, create an entitlement, a a loaded word, but I have to use it, an entitlement. So what is the, uh, Ian, what are the uh, moral or legal underpinnings of that claim? Because obviously our government, every government makes mistakes. Mm -hmm incarcerates people, executes people incorrectly. It makes mistakes all the time and sometimes for bad reasons. So, but I'm one as a libertarian who respects quite a bit the issue of accountability and those who commit the wrong in general have to be punished. Those who are victims have to be compensated we can start with that concession, but how does that all work when applied to reparations uh, where we have the people on this show who would be paying if there were reparations to be paid, uh, but didn't have anything to do with the wrong. So Ian, help us understand their side. If there is a support for the moral underpinnings of reparations. Well, here we go. And and again, I'm steel manning this because I'm not a supporter of reparations. But I think part of the reason that people like Nicole Hannah-Jones or Abraham Kendi or ta Coates, the people who argue for reparations, the reason it's so important for them to link not only historical wrongs to present day wrongs is that they are making the case that today's Black Americans are direct victims of the injustice that the U.S. government historically and present day perpetrated against uh, reparations. It's very interesting when reparations have typically been paid out in other settings, most notably the Holocaust, or even to Asian Americans that were interned here um, in internment camps in the United States, Reparations were paid to the actual people who found themselves incarcerated at the hands of the government. In in the case of uh, Jews during uh, in the post Holocaust era, Asian Americans here in the United States, and so I think there is a moral case to be made if you yourself, for some reason, or or not not for some reason, if you yourself were the subject of if, if you were enslaved yourself, then the enslaver, right, and the enslaved should be both compensated, one penalized and one compensated. The problem with rep- reparations, though, is that none of the enslavers or the enslaved are still around. And so mm. it's very hard to make the moral argument unless you say that the same systems of oppression that uh, that approved of slavery are still enslaving black Americans today. And, that, and that's, that's the key is their argument. I mean, I, yeah, I would imagine that the, the people you named uh, as being proponents for um, for reparations would argue, and I'm playing a little bit of a devil's advocate here, like it's basically the same oppressive government. It's the same oppressive hierarchy, which allowed slavery to exist in this nation. That is allowing for things like systemic racism uh, that are built into both government and private institutions. Uh, So from that respect, they would argue that, the folks suffering the direct effect of 
this systemic racism uh, still exist. So to the extent that in your in your example, the enslaver and the enslavee, uh, in the case for Japanese Americans interned during World War II by FDR, uh, whereas those people were able to petition the government and say, we were wrongfully imprisoned, we had our property taken and sold away from us, we want compensation for our homes, for our time spent in the camps, etc. Uh, I'm assuming that the argument to be made is that if you're a descendant of a slave uh, in the U.S., that you're still suffering from that systemic right. racism. Well, no, th- this again, this is why it's very crafty, these arguments. So mm. critical race theory, right, which has really experienced a resurgence in the last few years. Why is that? Well, critical race theory, the entire premise of that ideology is present day America every institution is infused with racism, structural racism, systemic racism, institutional racism. And so they can make the argument that since every institution is imbued with racism, and since there are racial disparities in education, in uh, imprisonment, in, in um, uh, criminology, all of those things are due to systemic racism. And if there's systemic racism, that must mean the government is sanctioning that, which means the government is on the hook to pay back every single American. And by the way, and I think in California, not only pay back every Black American today, but Black Americans for generations going forward. So the people arguing for mm. reparations, they want the whole bit. So it's not, it's not even to, if you've suffered today, it's for your children, their children's children, their children's children's children, on and on and on. And Ian, and- you said something. Um, I, was, I was listening to your sentence structure. You said three words that if I had a transcript, it would be on the whiteboard. You said, if we have systemic racism, then you said the three words I was listening for. That must mean, you said, that must mean government is at fault. And I said, give me (laughs) to myself, give me a break. Uh, I said, I don't get it. The fact is, systemic racism combines intentionally governmental action with private actors. And indeed, racism is, for the most part, for the most part, against the law today. Uh, Now, uh, private racism is not being uncomfortable living next to an Asian and having that unpleasant feeling yourself, that's not against the law. But in employment, in housing, we all know that. So it it's all in ways of society that matter collectively, it's against the law. So there is an adequate remedy today for private non-governmental racism. And therefore, no, the that must mean doesn't yep. work. And Ian, you can't slip it by us. Now I know you were. I'm, I'm the steel there. man. I'm the steel man. I understand. I understand it. You're the straw man. Um, um, so I wanted the audience to understand that that's the. Link. What's interesting? Yeah, that I mean, what's what's interesting to please. me is that in our society today there is power in victimhood, and. And by that, I mean, if the way in which you obtain and maintain power is to preserve a narrative of victimhood, right? Because once you start saying, well, maybe family structure matters, maybe education matters, maybe individual decisions matter, maybe personal responsibility. Once you start to say those things, then you are releasing victimhood as the only answer to why disparities may or may not exist. And so 
Nicole Hannah-Jones and all these people, they've lived lives in which they've gotten married, they've gotten a good education, they've bought homes, they've built up many fortunes. So they know in their own personal lives what the levers of success are because they've exercised them themselves as Black people in this country. And they actually know that they're not exceptions. I mean, the poverty rate for married Black couples has been in the single digits for as long as data has been recorded. So the, the so so this whole idea of that must mean, just what you said, Bob, that must mean racism is at the core or that must mean the government is responsible. They know that it must, it, they know that it doesn't only mean that, but it's good for business. It's good for to preserve this yes. ideology of victimhood. And for a long time, people have learned now to be envious of victims because you get a lot of goodies. Uh, this all goes. This all goes back to, and to me, it became really pronounced when we had uh, sentencing enhancements because of hate crimes. Now, if you can claw your way into a protected yes. class and somehow so that if somebody kills you, you can squeeze into or harms you and you can squeeze into one of those coveted categories of yep. victim. Now you're more safe because nobody's as if it motivates the, the person yes. doing the harm. So victimhood is something that you want to claw your way into, which Ian, as you have pointed out, it makes victimhood a coveted status to have and how unhealthy that is for society to feel they have to be a victim to get the benefits. Well, this is why, you know, this is why I've written my book. This is why I run schools because, you know, I am, I am a black person and I have experienced racism in my own life, certainly. But I refuse to wallow uh, in victimhood or uh, presume that my destiny is wrapped up waiting for someone else to release themselves of their oppressive mm. tendencies. So I run schools in the Bronx because I want my kids, our kids, who are almost all low income, almost all black and Hispanic kids to know that they can do hard things, that they have power, that there are levers within their control that they can exercise, even with tough circumstances that they've been born into, that they can live the life of their choosing. To me, that's the empowering set of strategies or alternatives to reparations, which in my view are a dead end road that will actually hurt the very people that it's intended to help. Thus, the title and, and, of your book, Agency. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And maybe this um, is a perfect chance, Ian, to share the, 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 it's not a book review show, obviously, but it's directly relevant. So share with us uh, why that word, the single word title to your book, and what the premises of your book so the audience can see how your point of view fits into the discussion on reparations. Yeah. And, and I'm sorry, Bob, before Ian tells us about his book, which I desperately want to hear Ian tell us about, because it sounds like such an interesting uh, a book that he wrote, but two things prior to what you said, one is even assuming that the underlying case for reparations is valid. And, and I agree, that's a huge assumption to make. Uh, in your opinion, Ian, also Bob being involved with the legal profession for so long, isn't uh, the cause for remedy directly tied to you having to always prove how you were harmed, right? So I could be guilty of libeling you, but for you to get compensation, you have to show me how my libel impacted your ability to either earn or cost you in terms of compensation, correct? Yeah. Uh, I know Bob might be best answering that. But so does even the concept that if if we buy the premise 
that black families are still being harmed by systemic racism that originated with slavery, how does one calculate it's, the remedy? How do you arrive at a figure? Would it would it not have to be on an individual basis? Is what I'm saying in terms of practically being able well, to figure that I out. Well, I mean, there's some blunt instruments here, and there's disagreement even within the black community because there's something called ADOS. Not sure more if you're familiar with that term. I think it's mm. uh, the African descendants of slaves. This is a community okay. within the black community that I believe their uh, um, belief is that they have a special line because they're truly, as they view it, descendants of African slaves brought to the United States. Meaning people like me, I was born in London to Jamaican parents and we, we emigrated you know, to the United States. So we're not legit, right? So even, so even that as so some, there's some black Americans who even believe that not all black people in the United States should even have access to reparations. But then there are other complications. There were black slave owners in the United States and not yes. an insignificant population. What do, what do we do with them? What do we do with the white soldiers who died during the Civil War in order to liberate, help liberate the country from slavery? This question of how you calculate is is I mean there there are reasons to reject reparations period but when you get into this question that you're asking I mean in San Francisco isn't aren't they proposing that every black person I mean a, a state in which that never even had slavery they're proposing every black person I think gets two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year for ninety seven years something like that right. Where did, where did right. that come from? That, of course, is just the work of a commission which was um, charged with the duty of coming up with the first draft calculation, sort of the op opening offer to for white people to buy their, to assuage their feelings of guilt. Uh, we'll give you a quarter of a million dollars, call it a wash, is what they did. Um, so that's where it came up with. It's not like to two decimal places what Big John would want. It was a commission um, who weren't allowed to conclude the amount is zero. They weren't allowed to conclude that. So that's what they came up with as an opening offer, uh, just to keep the conversation alive. Yeah. And, and, so there is that, uh, I think it's AB 3121 in California that, as Bob said, they're going to issue their recommendation. Uh, it's almost a foregone conclusion that it'll be accepted as, as a recommendation. But even beyond that, another point you brought up, uh, which I think is underlying a lot of this and allowing it to get steam, is this sense of paternalism uh, on the part of the government towards its citizens. So, for example, the point, and and I will, I do want you to get into this uh, point a little bit more deeply, but just to set it up for you to frame it, is this necessarily good uh, for uh, African American families uh, uh, in this country to say, as you said, well, here's a, let's assume the number's a quarter million, here's a quarter million bucks, and that's going to go forward for X number of generations, and the only qualification for this is the color of your skin. And by the way, your current achievement, any potential achievement, you don't have to worry about that. You are essentially funded. To me, and again, I'm, I am open to criticisms of being uh, ignorant or uh, uh, insensitive to the plight of the American uh, slave in this country, which is a fair criticism. Um, it seems to me that that robs you of your individuality. That would rob you of your humanity, your accountability. And if I could use the word in a general sense, not a religious one, it robs you of your soul. It, it, says, it says that going forward, you need right. not achieve. You need not even attempt to succeed. And to me, that is the most damning, the most vile thing mm -hmm. someone can say to me. You are not responsible Correct. for your own actions. You are not responsible. Now, we all need help. 
we all need help. We all need a guiding hand. But to your point, Ian, and please expound on it, and I know you have some remedies and alternatives in your book that I would love to hear from you, but just on that paternalistic sort of positioning that reparations put you into. Because like we said, this is unlike the Japanese-American reparations, even to the extent that it's unlike the reparations for victims of the Holocaust, uh, that there's no direct victim and there's no direct calculation of remedy, right? This is supposed to be a catch-all blanket thing. Uh, Talk to me a little bit about that, because to me, that to me is horrendous as a libertarian, as an individual, uh, as a lover of individual liberty. And deter- you know, yeah, how does let that me work? add one more word to your litany of the things that it robs you of. Mm. It robs you of agency. It robs you yes. of the your ability to lead a self-determined life. We have reams of data of government giving out money with no strings attached. We've got social welfare programs. The, 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 the last 50, 60 years, and by the way, there are many people who argue against reparations saying it's not because we're, we're against reparations because we don't think you know, the, the government should be doing things. The government has been doing things to the tune of nearly $30 trillion over 40 to 50, mm. 60 years of social programming to close the very kinds of disparities that are now being used as the basis to argue for more reparations. So there's lots of evidence that money falling from the sky from the government is soul crushing, It rem- particularly for men. And again, we've seen it. We even saw this, by the way, with COVID. Just in the last few years, we had multiple billions of dollars showered on communities. And as we emerged out of COVID, there have been a lot of young Americans, young men in particular, who've remained behind, where it became more profitable to stay at home than it did to actually go to work. Soul crushing. And not only is it soul crushing for individuals, it's soul crushing for relationships. It's soul crushing because it brings on kinds of behaviors, uh, social isolation, more drug abuse, opioid Overdoses and addictions. So this is real. So the people who are arguing for reparations, and you know, I sometimes I try to give the benefit of the doubt, but they know this. It is not helpful. Mm. What is what we know to be helpful are the strategies that millions, tens of millions of Black people have been exercising for generations to lead lives where they are agents of their own uplift. And that's where education, work, family formation, marriages, children born within marriage, usually personal faith commitment. These are the elements that we know work for people of all races to find prosperity. And reparations is trying to take a shortcut, but in my view, it would be a very destructive one. It seems to me reparations would would counter all of the important positive messages in your book. <laughs> it virtually it neutralizes yeah. them. And when as you describe the effects of reparations, looking into the future. And I'm not trying to be a wise guy. I can foresee a period where we have to pay reparations to make up for the reparations. Oh, and, and, and only at larger amounts. <laughs> to correct. Yes. So it's like it's, it's my observation about reform movements. What I have observed whenever in this country we have a, we want to reform something let's reform welfare let's reform this that the thing we're reforming is 100% of the time a prior government <laughs> action anything mm. we are never right. reforming common yeah. law we're never <laughs> reforming 
goodness. We're reforming a government program. There's got to be a message there. We don't ref- have a need to reform private action. So that's what I fear about reparations and the the dependency that it, it builds where you have no, your life has no economic value other than that assigned to it. It's the government says, here, we have appraised your life. Your life is worth a quarter of a million dollars. Here's the money. And for that, we have bought your yep. life out from yep. under you. That's the social contract. We are buying your life for a quarter of a million dollars. So the recipients lose all the benefits of life itself by getting a check. They get the money, but they give well, up the is- life. This is this is the point. I mean, anything that the government subsidizes, you get more of. So if we're trying to subsidize people who are on the bottom uh, segment of the economic ladder by just manufacturing money, it, it it actually creates a perverse incentive, right? It neutralizes the very ambitions that are at the heart of what most of us think about as the American dream, the American dream. And and again, the reason I run schools is not, I don't want to produce graduates who feel that they need the U S government to come in and pay their bills for them, but that they've mastered the tools of self-sufficiency and moral development and, and, and the responsibility of being a citizen and ultimately to being a parent, a husband, a wife, a contributor to their community, reparations moves in the exact wrong direction. Ian, if you were to speculate, um, those who are the strong, strongest, perhaps, proponents of reparations, they are not any well, maybe they are less wise, but they have to, what you, the point in your book, they can't say it's wrong. Your book is not the type of book that ever can be wrong. It's, it's, it's too obviously correct. So if you can help us understand, if you can, and maybe it's not knowable, what is, is there a, deeper motivation? Is there something going on behind the reparations movement? Or is it just ill-conceived, the great society on steroids, just a horrible idea by people who don't really know how humans behave? Can you give us any insight? And you're allowed to say you can Well, can't. you know, again, it's I have a cynical response. Again, when I look at wealthy Black Americans in particular who who in their own lives have done the things that usually, you know, it's part of the middle to upper class life script. They got a good education themselves. They, they worked full time. They got married. They had kids within marriage. And they found wealth. You know, they bought homes. They usually have some kind of faith commitment. So they know the drill. They know the drill. So when I hear them, the Nicole Hannah Joneses of the world, arguing for reparations, there's a part of me that that is that's it's completely cynical, and and, and but you know you know if if they truly believe it, then this is what they must believe that they are just random exceptions, that the tens of millions of Black Americans who comprise the Black middle class, they just think they're all suffering. You know, maybe the government let a few, um, you know, let a <laughs> let a few of us black people be successful, but the vast majority are just suffering in the oppressive hell of America. And even when they see the stats on ethnic groups that generate the most wealth, you'll see Nigerian Americans, you'll see Ghanaian Americans, and they'll explain that away too. They'll say, well. Those people were already educated when they came here. They're not real black people. So they've got an excuse for everything. But at the end of the day, this is not what's going to transform our community. 
I mean, no person who's arguing for reparations is going to prove to me that they care more than I do about the black community. And I'm here mm-hmm. running schools in the Bronx. And I know lots of other leaders like me who are putting their lives on the line to create a better life for many black people and people of all races who were born into very challenging situations, but don't think that reparations are the answer. The answer lies much more in topics like strong families, access to high quality education, personal faith, work, entrepreneurship. Those are the things that matter at the end of the day for kids of any race. And so, you know, is there something else behind what's going on with reparations? I know it's hard for me to believe, especially when it's coming from the people who've actually capitalized on the things that make America special, for them to be successful, and then for them to say it's impossible for everybody else. What's good for me, it's not good for thee. I've been able to make it. Even Oprah Winfrey, Oprah Winfrey went on this whole rant. She said, you know, those people, they will always have their whiteness. They will always have their whiteness. Mm. Even when she was confronted with the idea, well, there are, there are a lot of low-income white people that are not doing well, who are doing far worse than well-to-do black people. But even Oprah Winfrey said, yeah, but those people will always have their whiteness. Think about that. Think about, wow. think about wow. one of the most powerful individuals in the world. There's something. Wow, that's it's power. When you say it that way, it's 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 powerful. And when you describe the secret sauce of earning middle class, upper middle class status, you describe, of course, collectively bourgeois values and there is a substantial class who say that itself, those are white values. They describe the values that to us are so obviously the secret source of success. And they describe it as itself. That's cultural. That's your view. And the fact is, in, in saying that, Ian, you would be criticized by saying you're promoting white behavior and saying to blacks, behave like whites and you'll make it. And that's how they attack even yes. what you said, something as obvious as the I, 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 I've been on the receiving end of that criticism. That again, if you look, it's very crafty. It's very crafty, these arguments. So even when you speak about behaviors, by the way, that were normal in the black community. I mean, in the early part of this century or prior century, black people had higher marriage rates than the white community, Mm -hmm. right? But now the narrative, oh, no, 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 no. Marriage, diligence, hard work, being objective, being on time, those things are white. So even that is being robbed, robbed, from black people. And this idea that the answer instead is that the government's got to start writing you checks in order to be successful. It's insidious. You, you, you think about how racially discriminatory that thinking is. You've reduced people to infants who, who, who are incapacitated from leading their own lives. But Ian, and I hate to do this because I really don't believe any of what I'm about to ask you, but I feel Mm -hmm. like I have to. If we were to buy into the general premise, if not the specifics of reparations, uh, of general systemic harm to black families in this country, to the extent that we know and you've stated you don't believe reparations is what would help. What I would ask you this, do you think there's any systemic barriers that exist that you might point to and say, okay, reparations is not the answer, but I do still see some barriers in yes. area X that inherently prevent black yes. families 
from getting on this success sequence that you describe in your book of getting married, getting an education. So is there some merit to at least, do you feel to the argument that, yes, there's not this systemic, we're keeping black people down uh, narrative, but there might be some systemic instances that you can identify to say, hey, you know what? We're on the right path, but these have got to go. This is the final step yep. of, of the journey. So the answer to that is yes. So I just mm-hmm. opened Vertex Partnership Academies, which is a new virtues-based international baccalaureate high school. It's it's organized around the four cardinal virtues of courage, justice, temperance, and wisdom. And it's a phenomenal school. It's got a world-class curricula. And in this district, District 12 in the Bronx, of the 2,000 or so students that started ninth grade in 2015, four years later, only 7% graduated from high school ready for college. Seven. Meaning that these ninth graders started ninth grade, right? And they either dropped out or they did earn their high school diploma but still could not do math nor reading without remediation if they were to go to college. So they were just pushed along by the system, is what you're saying. Now, in this district, we opened up a high school and were sued by the teachers union, right? And and there's actually a cap. There's a legislative cap, a legislative barrier that has been reached. So if you did want to open up a great school, you were barred from doing so. And when we were able to finally figure out a way, the teachers union sued us. We won. We won the lawsuit. So we were able to open our school this past August. But this is a quintessential example of a structural barrier that is definitely harming low-income Black and Hispanic students. Because imagine if you were born in this district where only 7% of kids graduate from high school ready for college. The government is in essence condemning you to a substandard education. Yeah. uh, A seven-year-old can't solve that problem, right? A seven-year-old is not going to be able to remove that legislative barrier. So I don't deny that there aren't um, systemic barriers. That is a very vibrant example. But it's not, but I will tell you, there are black elected officials who advocate to keep the cap in place. Mm. So what do you call that when? Well, that, of course, is a political pact, which um, uh, the Democratic Party has organized. Political parties, as we know, are just political marketing machines, and they try to get to 50.01% of the voters, and they win. And so that represents the the alliance of uh, left black uh, interest groups from the all of the, the, the self-appointed spokespeople for the blacks, and uh, the teachers' union, they find themselves in the same marketing machine, the Democratic Party, and therefore they have no choice. So, and that, by the way, Ian, as you know, and just to mention to the audience, that is the best example of how those people who will be quite vocal to providing more upward mobility for what they perceive as a black underclass, uh, and yet uh, utterly cynical and not promoting the single most... And it's, by the way, in it's the policy you answered most directly to Big John's question. So the first thing you jump to appropriately is the lack yes. of choice in yes. public education. And, and so one can simultaneously argue to fight against systemic barriers, such as the lack of school choice and educational freedom, while also promoting the very behaviors that cultivate agency within young people. Both things can be true at the same time. But to lay everything at the feet of this mythical idea of systemic or institutional or structural racism 
as the boogeyman, as the answer to every question, it's doing a disservice to all the people that are actually genuinely trying to find solutions here. And it robs the very people, the very people, the people who live in communities who only want the best things for their kids. It robs them of the ability to demonstrate that they can be agents of uplift in their own lives. And Ian, what's most interesting is you almost, we almost can take the message that you have presented to us today and say, we kind of agree with proponents of reparations that there are systemic issues. But before we start finding a $31 trillion solution, how about some charter schools in the Bronx for openers? And let's yes, see what exactly. happens. So, yes. so we can join forces with them on the problem, but we offer a far more sensible and and recognition of yes. the individual yes. solution. So as as usual, Bob and Ian, um if you could do something with less government and more freedom, I will always yes. be a proponent of that. Uh, the opposite is always a recipe for disaster. Um, all right, let's start to wrap up the show. And I'm going to do something that you're typically not going to see a Bronx Science alumni do for a Brooklyn Tech alumni, which is I'm going to ask Ian uh, to tell us when and where people can find his book, Agency, and to tell us a little bit more about his awesome work that he's doing with charter schools in the Bronx and elsewhere. Uh, well, Ian, go ahead. And how we can yes. follow you. And how we well, can guys, thank you, you so much. This has been an incredible conversation and a very important one because I try to give the benefit of the doubt to those people who might be arguing, misguided as I might believe, but they're arguing for reparations because they do see suffering within the black community and others. I share that concern, but the strategies that we're putting forth have to be designed to empower that community, not disempower that community. As far as my book, it's all about this idea of empowering the rising generation to recognize that they can overcome the victimhood narrative and discover their own pathway to power. An agency is now out in the world. It's published by Templeton Press. You can find it on Amazon or anywhere you buy books. In fact, the audio book, because uh, I, I just completed the self-narration, will be uh, out on Audible and wherever you listen to audiobooks on May 16th, 2023. So I'm very excited about that. And I like to be someone who doesn't just speak about ideas. I try to put them into action virtues in action. So that is why back in August of 2022, we launched Vertex Partnership Academies, which will be one of the first of its kind, virtues-based international baccalaureate high schools that provides young people a great opportunity either to get a college level, college prep education, if college is where they want to go, or during their junior and senior year, they'll be able to pursue apprenticeships in healthcare, maybe in phlebotomy, real estate, computer science, ways in which they can earn an actual credential. So at the end of high school, if they so choose, they can go straight into industry and get a well-paying job if that's something that they aspire to. It's all about empowering you to lead the life of your own choosing. That's what agency is all about. If folks would like to follow me, uh, you know, I'm on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Ian V. Rowe, I-A-N-V-R-O-W-E, Vertex Partnership Academies. The website is vertexacademies.org. Uh, I'm also at the American Enterprise Institute. So my email there is ian.rowe at aei.org. But I'm, I'm on a, 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 a crusade, for lack of a better word, to find the common ground where we all may identify the issues that exist in our country, but that we have to be more creative to really understand the solutions that actually work, that actually help to cultivate 
agency. We don't want uh, dependence and grievancy. We want hope and agency. Ian, that was my goodness, said. I, yeah. it was so. It was such a privilege to share this time with you. I feel like I've made a, at very least, a digital friend and maybe yes. even a real yes. life friend when I get to New York. So you're doing wonder, you're doing God's work. Um, thank you so much, both for giving us your time and far more importantly, for the work you're doing with your schools and with your writing. Thank, thank, you, thank you so, so much, much, guys. I really appreciate it. It's an honor. Thank you, Ian. Uh, once again, uh, Ian Rowe of the American Enterprise Institute. Join Bob and myself, Big John, next time for the next episode of Free For All, where we'll be in, uh, engaged in more interesting conversation revolving around liberty. Until that point, we'll see you next time.